You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I just want to tell you about a new podcast from Tina Brown. You, of course, know Tina Brown as the editor-in-chief at Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Her new show is TBD with Tina Brown, and she invites you to hear candid conversations with writers, politicians, crime sleuths, journalists. First episode is with Jill Soloway from Transparent. Subscribe today. It's TBD with Tina Brown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also bringing you the show this week, it is Screen Dive, a new podcast from 20th Century Fox. They take you behind the scenes of some of their most legendary films, The Sandlot, Young Frankenstein, Devil Wears Prada, Super Troopers, Planet of the Apes, something for everyone. Subscribe now to Screen Dive and get started on your journey into the Fox filmography. Okay, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff. Max is out this week. Aaron, who did you talk to for this week's podcast? Straight to the point. Straight That's to right. the point. I, I talked, don't have time for banter, Aaron. I talked to uh, Irene Carmone, who is someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. She writes for New York Magazine. She's on CNN. Uh, she wrote the Notorious RBG book. She also broke... Big story about Charlie Rose and CBS. Won a lot of awards for that, as I understand it. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about, so I'm excited about this one. Aaron, if you have things that you're excited about that you want to share with the world, how do you do it? Email newsletter. It's simple. Uh, everyone's got a box to receive them, and uh, pretty future-proof, I feel like, the email newsletter. So uh, I would get one with MailChimp. They make it really easy, and it's free when you first sign up before a bunch of people are subscribing, so it's a great place to experiment with the newsletter form. Thank you, MailChimp, and now here's Aaron with Arin Carmo. Welcome. You're in Carmon. Hi, Aaron. Okay, it's been almost a year since you published the Charlie Rose story you did for the Washington Post. In fact, since this isn't coming out today, we could just pretend that this is the one <laughs> year anniversary. Year, it was the one year anniversary last week. Last week was the yeah. one year anniversary. And I'm going to assume that most people are familiar with that there was a Washington Post story about sexual misconduct by Charlie Rose, and that we don't have to recount the contents of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, what has the year that that story has been out been like for you? 
Well, I mean, to step back a little bit, the story was seven years and 17 days in the making. Yeah. So when it was finally came out, it was still part of this kind of flood of Me Too stories and personal narratives. And so um, it felt like we were just kind of like in the eye of a storm immediately being inundated with so many other women telling us their stories. Because when we'd been working on the story, Amy and I at the Washington Post, it was a secret. And so the moment that it burst open, all of a sudden we were navigating all the politics of you know, media companies and what, how they were responding to it. And then we were also faced with this like long list of people who wanted to talk to us. And we immediately realized that there was a lot of follow-up reporting to do because we had focused on how Charlie Rose had engaged in misconduct, according to eight women and many other witnesses at his show on PBS. But he also had this longstanding relationship with CBS. And he was a correspondent at 60 Minutes. He was a host on the morning show. He had hosted different shows over the years. And so Amy and I decided we would spend what turned out to be the next five months doing the next step story, which is, okay, so we have someone who's credibly accused of sexual misconduct. Who knew about it? And what did they do about it? And to be honest, that kind of second order story is much harder than actually getting people to tell stories about traumatic things that happened to them. You said that this investigation was seven plus years in the making. Uh, Where did you enter the story? I first found out about allegations of sexual misconduct against Charlie Rose in 2010 when I was a reporter at Jezebel. Mm. And it came the way a lot of stories come, which is through a source, through a tipster. And this person had pretty detailed accounts uh, that involved a bunch of different individuals who ended up being in the story that was published in the Washington Post. But at the time, I was given some latitude to work on this uh, at Jezebel, but I was working at Gawker Media where the expectations were to produce a lot. And so every minute that I was spending had to be accounted for. And I did make contact with some of the people who I was told had had things happen to them. But to the extent that I was able to communicate with them, they made it really clear that they did not want to talk to a reporter. And I cast a wide net and I I met with people and I called people and I emailed them and, and I just hit a wall. And reluctantly, I had to say, you know, I can't justify spending this extremely rationed time on the story. And, you know, I told a couple of friends over the years, you know, this guy, Charlie, he's kind of a creep from what I've heard. And some of this was out like there was a radar list of men who will be accused of sexual misconduct in a decade. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I'm guessing this is not the only tip you received of this kind while you were working at Jezebel? No, but I think it was different because the radar allegations were about, certainly they were about unwanted advances, but they were not about his employees or the work environment at Charlie Rose or at CBS. And so I think it actually took the kind of reporting that was happening in the fall of 2017 in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, in the Washington Post, on Harvey Weinstein, and then on Roy Moore. Uh, That was a piece that was really influential to our process that actually showed how to frame a story that is about an abuse of power, like as opposed to look at this creepy old man. Mm, mm. And so I kept (laughs) saying to close friends of mine, I was working on a book proposal at the time, a since shelved book proposal, and I had a deadline for myself. You know, I was a freelancer. uh, I needed money. And I 
I kept saying, like, when is someone going to do the Charlie story? And my friend who's been on your show, Rebecca Traster, was like, you're doing the Charlie Rose story. This is your story. Stop waiting for somebody else to do it. And so I decided to call my editor at the Washington Post's Outlook section, which is like their weekend review, Sunday review section. And even though I thought like mm, the Washington Post is not going to take a story like this from a freelancer uh, because it's a story that potentially involves serious legal liability. And they don't know that I that they can trust me because I've been writing essays about gender and politics for them, including about me, too. And so in. Oh, before I went to my editor, I started reaching back out to the people I tried to talk to. And these are still like old emails from 2010. Yeah. yeah and some of them actually were Facebook messages because I couldn't find any other way to reach them. And I could still see the prior inquiries and conversations. I still had all the almost all the emails. Some of them had been in my Jezebel inbox. But the person who had been the original tipster, when I called that individual, they picked up the phone and they said, I've been waiting for you to call me. And so before I went to the editor at The Washington Post, I wanted to be sure that I had something to work on. And immediately things just started tumbling out because everybody had been reprocessing what happened to them in the context of the conversation that was happening nationally. So we had been, you know, as reporters, we were given a massive boost by the fact that suddenly there was a cultural space for people to say, actually, this was not just, you know, oh, that was an awkward boss experience or it was kind of my fault for getting myself in that situation, going to his house in Bellport or whatever. So I called up my editor at The Washington Post and told him, you know, this is what I have. And he said, let me check. And five minutes later, I guess he walked down to Marty Barron's office and he came back and he's like, yes, let's do this. Five minutes later, um, can you work with an investigative reporter at The Post so that you guys can be a team? And I said, fine. And the next morning I boarded a shuttle flight to D.C. and met with Amy for the first time and with the investigative editors. And we crashed it. And 17 days later, we had a story with eight women in it and three of them on the record. As someone who has freelanced pretty extensively, is it more difficult to get an editor to greenlight a story like this when you are not a contract employee? And what do you think gave the Washington Post the confidence to assign this to you? You know, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question because I'm not sure that I would like to. I mean, it's not that I was coming in off the street, right? I had been a professional journalist for a long time. But actually, the thing that I was surprised by is I've actually used my voice and my opinion on a lot. I mean, I was writing opinionated essays for yeah. them. And so I thought, well, they're just going to sort of cabin me in the opinion side, which was really what I was doing for them. But I think that they felt like for the purposes of the story, that didn't really matter. And it would be supervised by all of their editors. And Amy and I worked together pretty joint at the hip in the beginning, you know, in the same room a lot of the time and meeting with sources together. And I think that they became convinced <laughs> that I could do it. Um, and that's why they asked me to stay after the first story that came out. I ended up being there for six months as an essentially full-time freelance employee. And I think the number one question that I had walking in the door was, if we get sued, because I had been sued before, if we get sued, are you going to protect me? Because I'm, as an employee, you are de facto indemnified. The company will cover your legal fees. And as a freelancer, it's really about whether they're nice to you and they want to include you in their what could be considerable legal fees. And I just knew that as a freelancer, that was a risk that I could not take on on my own. And they were really great about it. I would also assume that with the case of a freelancer, 
what the lawsuit was about would in some ways like affect how the paper decided that they wanted to defend or not defend you. You know, we've seen lawsuits from telling the truth, lawsuits from massive <laughs> mistakes, right. uh, lawsuits, let's say in the case of Gawker Media, that were like frivolous yeah. in nature. Yeah. So it's not even like there's only one kind of lawsuit totally. that you can get hit with. Yes. And I think, you know, all of these contracts include a clause that says, you know, if you knowingly made something up right. or, you know, if you in some way went outside the bounds of professional responsibility, they don't have to defend you. But what we were really worried about was a libel lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit. And that didn't happen with that story. But it was certainly a real risk. And I don't think any of us expected that it would only take two and a half weeks for the story to come out. And one benefit that we had was, as I mentioned, that there was this cultural space that had opened up. We had the head start. A couple of people said, I'm only talking to you, even though there are other reporters working on this story now, because I know you've been trying to do it since 2010, although not consistently. And what what do you say when someone's at like you're already been talking to them? They're like, hey, someone else called. Should I talk to them? Like, what do you say back to that? <laughs> So the first Charlie Rose story, the New York Times was working on it. Vanity Fair, Huffington Post, and The Atlantic was what we were aware of. Basically everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we didn't know how far along they were. We didn't yeah. know how big the universe of people with Charlie accusations was. I think it's delicate, right? Because so much of these source relationships are about trust. And it's not a conversation that you want to have with them, which is like, by the way, this is all about whether I get the exclusive. Because you're already talking to them about things that are enormously sensitive. And to insert like my careerism that I want to be the one with the scoop is totally inappropriate. That said, your editor is breathing down your neck saying, lock them down, lock them down, they're yours. And so I think I would just say to them with complete transparency in the same way I would about going on or off the record, like, this is your decision. I can only speak for what we're doing. If you feel comfortable only speaking to us. That's what my editor wants. That would make my life easier. But you're, it's your story, and you are the owner of that story. And you're accountable to yourself. And I'm not going to unduly pressure you to say, like, oh, the Washington Post or whatever. But I can make an affirmative case why the Washington Post will be a responsible steward of your story. In that case about... Um on the record or off the record. And I think another way to frame that with regards to these stories is uh, named versus anonymous. Yeah. What What is that conversation like? Do most people start as anonymous and then at some point switch to named? Um, after you have a few people who are named, is it important to try to get more names or are you trying to just get numbers at that point? How do you navigate that question, both with the subjects and with your overall conception of the story? So from the beginning, in the very first meeting that I had with the Washington Post editors and with Amy, it was made clear to us that we would need people on the record. We would need people named in the story in order to publish it. We didn't know how many. And I think that they ultimately said, you know, we'll know it when we see it. We're going to figure it out based on what kind of evidence we have. First, we need to see, is there a pattern? I came to them with at least three incidences, three different people. But none of those people had yet agreed to have their names used. The first stage in this type of story is not anonymous or named. It's off the record. And I think being able to talk to people 
who say they're victims completely off the record is a really important part of building trust. And so you're just talking. I'm not even taking notes. Or if they're comfortable, you're just taking notes for your own records. And that way, they feel like they can tell you anything. And they can ask you anything. And sometimes it was us, like, cold contacting them off LinkedIn. And sometimes it was through a network of people. But we tried to keep that as independent as possible. And then when we then got to the point that they would be willing to, for example, be an account, a total number of people. Um, you know, we know seven other people. Will you be number eight? And this is the range of allegations, but we don't tell them who the other people are. And then the part in which we say, okay, can we describe what happened to you? And by this point, you know, we will have asked for any other kind of information to back this up, like who did you tell, or do you have anything in an email or a chat transcript? And the final stage and the most intense stage is, can you go on the record? But that's not the first conversation you have. By that point, you will have spent a lot of time showing them that you're not in this just to kind of sensationalize the story or for your personal glory. You're, you want to see this story through. You want to hold people accountable and you want to do it really carefully and thoughtfully. And when the time came to get people on the record, we actually talked to, um, I think Amy in, in particular, talked to the reporters who had done the Roy Moore story and what made that story so effective in terms of people really taking it seriously as readers is that these women had had the courage to use their names despite the fact that they lived in Alabama and Roy Moore was a public figure there, was running for Senate, and they had been minors. And it was shocking to see that all of these allegations had never been heard of before and all of a sudden all of their names, at least publicly. And the way that we were told that they did it is that they said, you know, would you feel comfortable if there were two? Would you feel comfortable if there were three? And then you could ask each individual, would you feel comfortable if I shared the details of what happened to you without your name to this other individual? Can I read to them what you said? And then they could decide if they're making an informed decision, here's what else would be in the story if you did this. And what if there were three of you? And so for some of them, even just getting in their stories anonymously was a process that took hours and hours and hours on the phone. And, and everybody, by the way, everybody has a good reason not to go on the record. But these, these women especially, I mean, they were facing huge pressure from their partners in some cases. One of them was a recently unemployed single mother. I mean, there's all kinds of career and personal ramifications for people not to do this. And I think as a reporter, you're kind of supposed to make a hard sell to them on the phone. But as a human, I'd be like, look, I get it if you don't want to do it. By the way, this might make me a bad reporter. But I'm like, yeah, this could be really I'm not going to pretend that it's going to be all awesome. You know, and you're going to get to go to the Oscars and whatever. Like, it's not this could suck. I am not going to lie to you. I tell people like, I mean, I um, interviewed journalists on the show um, for a living. Uh, but when people like I would advise people like, don't participate in a style <laughs> story. Even. You're going to look like, an, you know, like. Yeah. Like, but those stories are like, I mean, no, they're, no, they're trying I mean, to hasten the Marxist revolution. <laughs> I Yeah, exactly. But like um, from the most trivial yeah. to the most extreme, there's a lot of good reasons for not totally, appearing in totally. a new story. But at least this the countervailing thing. Yep. And that's not to say I don't ever make a persuasive case for why they should go on the record but that but it does not involve underplaying the risks and then you can talk about what the benefits are and the benefits are you're shining a light on something that's been a secret for so long and for the first woman who went on the record the turning point for her was that she found out that you know he had this is kyle godfrey ryan who is charlie's assistant who was um 
used to call in the middle of the night and tell his sexual fantasies and touch her inappropriately and so on. And she was fired after she told somebody else about it. And she found out that it was still happening. That had been back in 2006. And when that happened, when she found out that there were allegations that we had that were much more recent, she said, this has to stop. So I think the reason to go on the record is because you want there to be accountability. And that is a public service. I just think that you as a reporter can't you can't tell people you're going to be greeted as a hero. Everybody will love you because you don't know that to be true. There are enormous consequences to going on the record for this kind of stuff. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a word from our sponsor this week, Skagen. There is a story behind every single one of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches, also their jewelry. It's inspired by the people known as the happiest people on earth, the Danish. It reflects what's meaningful in their culture. Being part of a community, making time for relationships, and living in the moment, the minimalist design reflects a less-is-more lifestyle that makes their story so intriguing. So I encourage you to check out their men's and women's watches, their jewelry, and especially their smartwatches. They sent us one. Uh, you would never know it's a smartwatch, which I think is the highest form of compliment you can pay a smartwatch. Find them all at scoggin.com, where you can get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. Again, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thank you, Scoggin. Also presenting the show this week, a new podcast which attracts the movers and shakers that shape our world. It's TBD with Tina Brown. You know Tina Brown as the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, New Yorker. She's sat down with many of the world's most important people and heard their thoughts. She's now doing it on this podcast where you can hear candid conversations with writers, politicos, crime sleuth, journalists, and the newsmakers of tomorrow, including in the first episode I see here, uh, Jill Soloway from Transparent. She asks questions that no one will and digs into the topics that will shape tomorrow's world with style and grace. Go subscribe today to TBD with Tina Brown. Just search for it in Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you to TBD with Tina Brown. I want to talk about what you said about asking one um, source to share details with another source, particularly when you're looking for a pattern. How do you think about and prevent like a bleed between those stories where you're basically trying to get an unvarnished account from each person and you would like to know whether those unvarnished accounts <laughs> overlap, but revealing details of one I would assume could lead to more overlap that would be Well you don't you don't want to suggest don't be suggestive yeah. or yeah. leading people. That's a concern that we took really seriously. Um Meeting the standards of the Washington Post meant we had to be extremely careful about everything, including the notion that we were trying to get these women to collude to get Charlie Rose fired or, or the other individuals we yeah. later reported on. And so by the time we were asking them, can I share the details of the interview, we would have already had an independent record. And the first conversation happens from scratch. And so you try to say, 
as little as possible while still being a compassionate human and an inquisitive journalist. You try to say, you know, okay, so what about this? And if they might ask, like, does, has this happened to other people? How many people are you talking to? You can answer them. But a bad question would be like, oh, and is this the point where he, like, tells you to come into the shower with him or whatever? Like, yeah. that would, you know, in that way, it's a little bit more like a legal proceeding where you want to keep all of these these records independent and just knowing that later on for the reader, that is going to be really persuasive to say, like, in fact, a lot of these women did not know each other. In this case, particularly, I think you said that Charlie Rose's staff was about 15 people at most times. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty small community. This is people who overlap, people who knew each other. Was there a feeling while you were doing the reporting that the details of your reporting were circulating through the LinkedIn and Facebook intertwined worlds of people who presently or in the past worked at Charlie Rose? And how did you deal with that as you continued to find new people? Well, we were talking about a long swath of time. So it yep. wasn't and then there was a lot of turnover on the show. So it wasn't as much of a problem as you might think, considering how small of a group we're talking about. But yes, there certainly was gossip. And, and very soon, actually, there were some former staff members who we, it became clear to us were acting as agents of management on the show and trying to call each other in order to be able to bring information back. And in particular with the follow-up story that we did on CBS, I had conversations with people, you know, that I would jokingly call the North Korean cheerleaders because the conversations were exactly the same talking points every time you talk to someone. It was very clear that they had been coached because they said literally the same thing every time about what the environment was like on the show. And I'd be like, oh, really? Okay. Okay. So you also think it used to be a boys club, but now it's great. You know? <laughs> okay. Good to know. And you don't really call people out on their BS because what's the point? But you're just like, okay, well, that person has definitely been coached or that person is definitely trying to pump me for information to find out what I have, which would contaminate the process. And it was also really good for us to keep in touch constantly for Amy and me um, because, you know, without all of the information about what's happening, you could very easily be tricked. I want to turn a corner here and talk about your whole life. But before I do, um, I think that this Me Too era of journalism, not going to dip into the entire cultural force of it, but just purely as a publishing phenomenon, was pretty unique. Um, different publications sort of doing work that builds on previous work and it's all coming out at once. I certainly had never seen anything like it. What was it like to work within that, where you're seeing other stories coming out, you're near it, you know other people are working on it, Ronan Farrow seems to be jumping everyone's uh, battleship, you know, it, it's, um, it was a pretty intense couple months yeah. um, while it was like at peak, and it seems like it was both profound and also competitive and also pretty uncharted, like I'm curious about the whole experience for you and, and what surprised you, what you would do differently, what you'd do the same. The fact that we were part of this entire wave of reporting was actually really exhilarating, even when it was competitive, you know, because for me, my desire to do this story comes out of a broader set of commitments in the world. I'm a feminist and I'm a journalist. And so the ability to be able to do feminist investigative journalism felt like a gift. 
And it also felt like, wow, this thing that I've been working on and my colleagues have been working on for a long time is now something that institutions that are the most prestigious and well-resourced institutions want to devote resources to. I mean, the Washington Post asked me to stay on after the first Charlie story for five months. What ended up being five months, I don't think any of us realized it would take that long to do the story about who knew what about Charlie. And so I think that that kind of commitment is significant in our culture because it's validating this as a point of inquiry. And it's not just, okay, so these stories get a lot of traffic, everybody. I mean, at one point, somebody referred to this type of story to me as a sex story, which I found really offensive because I think it's a power story and it's a workplace story. And I think that the fact is it's a sexual misconduct, this weird umbrella term that we use for all kinds of behaviors that include harassment and assault and beyond has been allowed to fester in our society. And all of a sudden, all of these different reporters with different interests, different sources are, and including the fact that we were reporting on our own industry, felt really important and significant. And I feel a great sense of kinship with other reporters who are doing this kind of work. I learn from them. And then also, you know, I've gotten to talk to them a little bit about doing this kind of work. You know, Ronan Farrow and Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey and uh, Gabe Sherman and Emily Steele and Michael Schmidt. I was really one of the best parts for me was working with another reporter because this kind of work is exhausting and it's emotional and it's can be traumatizing. And so to feel like you're part of a group of people who are all really interested in getting these stories out and getting them done really well, it felt really rewarding. You described yourself as a feminist and a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, have you always in your career identified that way? Or at what point did you start identifying as a feminist journalist? Pretty much from the start. I feel really lucky to have known at a young enough age <laughs> to kind of chart that course. I knew I wanted to be a journalist probably in my early teens. And I, this is like hilariously careerist. Please. I went to a really small high school on Long Island, a Waldorf school, an anti-technology school. And I didn't know anyone really in journalism. And I really wanted an internship in the city. I grew up about 45 minutes away from the city. And so I convinced the principal of the school to start a career day where everyone could spend the day shadowing a professional for the sole purpose of me getting a summer internship at 10th grade or 11th grade. And so the moment that I had accomplished career day as a thing, I sent out a million emails. It was 2000, so it was kind of the beginning of email and people weren't getting spammed as much as they are now. I think it was still relatively novel to get an email that said like, hi, I am a young person. Like, can I spend the day with you? I'll, I'll say that though, even in 2018, if I could give one piece of advice to people listening to the show would be um, almost everyone's email address is online and people who are very famous just read their email. Yeah. You can email them. You can totally. email almost anyone in America. Oh, my gosh. I mean, one of my favorite things is that the person who modeled feminist journalism at the time for me was Katha Pollitt. And I cold emailed her the following year, the first year. I'll talk about it in a second. But and now she's a dear friend of mine. And I'm like, do you remember when I emailed you about Curtis? She's like, was I nice to you? <laughs> <laughs> she was. She was like, I work from this is what I would tell someone if they asked me right now, although now I have an office. But like, she's like, I work from home. Go hang out with my editor. And I hung out with Betsy Reed, who's now the editor of The Intercept. And um, yeah, people want to help young people for yeah. sure. You were how old at this point? 16. What was it like shadowing Betsy Reed at 16? I might have been 17 by then. It was good. It was um, by that point I had um, 
a lot more journalism experience, actually, because that first year, uh, I ended up spending the day at Ms. Magazine. They were actually the first people to get back to me. And I was like, great. I've always thought that there are not enough biographies of women in my school library where I spend my entire life. And so I thought, yeah, I'm a feminist. Great. And I know what Ms. Magazine is. And it was a point where they were like, why aren't young women feminists? So I think they were very happy that this 15, 16-year-old showed up that day. And by the end of the day, they were like, do you want to come back and do a summer internship? Of course, I was like, I'm so surprised. No, this was like my nefarious plan the entire time. And came back that summer, met an editor at The Village Voice. One of the other interns at Ms. was also interning there. Ended up interning at The Village Voice the next summer in the music section. That was the summer after I graduated from high school. And writing about, I don't know, like Ani DeFranco. I went to a lot of Ani DeFranco concerts. Yeah, it, was a, it, was a good, it was a good time to be on the Ani DeFranco beat. <laughs> that was my first story for them and the Tori Amos beat. I mean, I was basically like, I'm, anybody who knows me well knows that I am a pop culture idiot. But I was like, well, I do like women. Like <laughs> Now I'm like, I'm an opera fan. But um, at the time, I was slightly more plugged in as a high school student. What did people make of this 18, 17, 19-year-old who really, really wanted to be a journalist, like interning and stuff like that. Like, what was it like like doing real work at, at that age? I didn't do any real work that way at that <laughs> age. I worked at a Volvo repair shop during the summers. I'm pretty sure you have way more useful skills than I do. They were just like, <laughs> all the other mechanics just used me as like, a, they would competitively try to prank me harder and harder. Um, but that's like, I mean, you know, Village Voice music isn't like life or death stuff, but it's like it's a lot of responsibility for a young person. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Internet provided a certain amount of openness that hadn't existed. I think people were amused mostly. I mean, I I think back at teenage me and how I was so confident, like I don't even understand. I have so much more self-doubt now than I did then. Like, why did I just think I could walk in and do that and, like, be a music critic? It's insane. But I think I'm lucky that I did it before I had the chance to be like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And I think there was a certain marketability, too. Like, I think, you know, my editor made sure that the first story I did for The Village Voice said how old I was. Ah. And so it was also a gimmick. Yeah. And that's okay. I was, like I said, a nefarious careerist teenager. So I was like, great. How can we make this teenager thing work for me? So you were kind of like seeing in your mind, like when you wrote the book about like how you became a music reviewer when you were 18 and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, Almost Famous came out that year Um, around that time, I guess. Um, I knew that I didn't want to stay a music critic, but I think it was a place where I could write. And there was a great tradition of letting writers have voices at the Village Voice. What was the first job job you had in journalism? When I graduated from college... Um, I, so I'd been continuing to write for The Voice, and I also wrote a travel column for the Boston Globe and spent summers. I, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So I worked in Argentina and in Israel for the summers, and I did some travel writing for Let's Go. Um, it didn't really add up to anything as a job. Yeah. And so um, I took an internship at the Aniston Star in Alabama. And I uh, moved out there just as maybe like a month before Hurricane Katrina. I'm not even familiar with the name of the town. Are you just said Aniston? Aniston, Alabama. Okay. It's, yeah, it's about 60 miles from Birmingham. And it's a paper that has an incredible tradition of, uh, especially during the civil rights era, covering the civil rights movement as a movement and not as a civil disturbance. And there's also a long tradition of Yankee carpetbaggers going down there to learn the trade. 
So people would hear me open my mouth and they'd be like, oh, I know you. You're from the Aniston Star. Um, but then I came back. My first real full-time job, to properly answer your question, was I covered the media business of Women's Wear Daily for three and a half years. And that job I started just as the Devil Wears Prada came out. What did you learn working at uh, Women's Wear Daily? I think the best thing that it taught me was, because my beat was the media industry, was how New York powerful people worked. You know, where they like to go to lunch, how they talk to each other. I used to sometimes go to three parties a night to cover them or just to, you know, shoot the shit, talk to people. And I did not belong in fashion, just like I really hadn't belonged in music. But it was a place where I was writing every day on a beat. Yeah. And I had an excuse to say to anyone, and I mostly did this, you know, in a way that was not necessarily advancing news, but just like people that I thought were interesting to be like, hey, I have an expense account. Do you want to go to lunch to some writer that I would admire, that I admired? And so I I got to know a lot of people and I had, I guess, the same kind of chutzpah to kind of come up to people and be like, hi, like, tell me everything. Yeah. And that's, you know, the best part about being a reporter is you can, that confidence is not just deployed for your career it's deployed to get people to tell you things what was the first time so the Ani DeFranco beat wasn't for you the Women's Bear <laughs> Daily beat wasn't for you what was the first time you felt like oh this is where I should be like this is the kind of work that I want to do for the rest of my life it was the next job which was a Jezebel yeah when did Je- Jezebel didn't even launch hadn't been out very long then no, I think, think it was been around for maybe. So I wrote about Jezebel's launch at Women's Wear. Ah. So that would have been between 2006 and 2009. And I interviewed Anna Holmes over the phone and we had a drink. And I remember her telling me what she was going to do with Jezebel and that it was going to be basically, you know, smart and irreverent and critique women's magazines and be feminist, but also cover celebrity. And I thought, well, that's never going to work. You know, and I had worked at the Earnest Feminist magazine when it was at Ms. when it was kind of falling apart. And I had covered all of these women's magazines and seen how they had uh, promised each time that they were going to be the smart woman's magazine. And then, you know, their cover sales would sag and they would, you know, go back to whatever was working for them before. And so I was very skeptical. And then I became a reader. And then um, they were doing layoffs at Condé Nast. And I wanted to leave because I'd planned on being there for a couple of years, and then there was a media recession, and I was there for three and a half. And I thought, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go to grad school. And so I decided to volunteer for the layoffs and to spare someone because I was a few months away from quitting. Anyway, take some severance, hang out. And uh, I went to my boss, and I said, yeah, I want to volunteer for one of these layoffs. They weren't asking for them. He said, why don't you take the weekend to think about it? And... So that was Friday. Over the weekend, I got an email from Anna Holmes, and it said, I'm wondering where you are in your life and your career. Can we talk? And I was like, how about today? So I didn't go to grad school. I talked to Anna at Jezebel on Sunday. She said she wanted a reporter who would cover all the issues that Jezebel was covering. By Wednesday, I had a job. When you were thinking about someone's going to do feminism like women's magazines and celebrity like you said oh my god that's not gonna work like and i totally understand what you mean because i was a jezebel reader and even at its best and i think it was it oh sorry it still exists but um in its um gawker own days even at its best it was always sort of a surprising and almost contradictory mix of ideas 
starting there, like, how did you reconcile that for yourself? And how did you decide, like, this is where I, you know, this is my lane here? You know, when I was in college, I went to the March for Women's Lives. It was a, a pro-choice march. And I told a journalist uh, that was kind of a mentor to me. I was like, oh, you know, I was at this march over the weekend. And he said, okay, it's fine for you to do that in college. But when you graduate and you're a journalist, you can't go to marches anymore. And I thought, well, that's just what you know. Now, actually, now I would not go to a march. Now I still want to cover a march. But what I do want to do is reserve the right to express my views as a citizen, even though I'm a journalist. And I think that the way that that's accomplished is by being really transparent. You know, to say, okay, like I'm pro-choice, but I'm going to go spend, I'm going to go ride the truth truck with, you know, the anti-abortion activists in New Mexico, which I did. And I said, look, you can Google me. I'm pro-choice, but I want to know where you're coming from. And I felt like what Anna had accomplished at Jezebel was even whether it was covering, you know, airbrushed magazines or whether it was covering sexual assault. You know, they did one of the first Terry Richardson stories. I was reporting on The Daily Show and, and other things. But I think what people really responded to was that raw transparency. This is who you're talking to. There's not this pretense that I'm going through the journalism robot machine, you know, like I'm, I'm churning out into a new voice. And I found that liberating because I had always kind of been that person. Like I, I had been toiling at women's wear and going to parties and stuff. And I was like, Anna, how did you know I was a Ms. intern? But, you know, Ms. was a totally different beast from Jezebel. Like we weren't supposed to be having fun, even though the early days of the second wave feminist movement were much more fun and irreverent than we've been led to believe. By the time I was there, it was like a virtuous thing. So the notion that you could do feminism and you could have fun and you could be a journalist, it actually took people like Anna and it took people like Rebecca Traster to show that that was possible, I'd actually given up. I was like, well, I guess you, you got to pick one. And I'm a journalist. But by the time Anna called me, I thought, you know what, like these women have a lot of vision. And I want to be part of it. I never read the comments uh, when I read Gawker. Mm -hmm. But I understand that for people who worked at these sites, and this is true of the larger internet, but I'm just going to focus in on your personal experience. Um, that community of people who were reading and commenting also were part of that equation about what worked or didn't work there, and they were active and uh, loud. What, like, how did writing, like, with your hand up and people critiquing and responding in real time to your writing change how you worked as a writer? I mean, in retrospect, the Jezebel comments were a preview of what Twitter would be like mm, in particular with the, the posture of, of yeah. politics, like this kind of instant feedback and sometimes instant call out. Yeah. But I think for me, it was really exhilarating because I had come from print. So the idea that people were going to immediately converse with me and they were going to contribute to the story in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, it could be toxic, but my experience of it was actually really positive. I was so excited to be read. And I was really excited to hear from people. And I was excited that they felt a real personal connection to that site. And I've worked in a lot of places since then, but that felt the most intimate. That felt the most like we know who our audience is and we're in conversation with them. And they're not the only ones we're writing for, but um, and we don't want that to constrain us. But just knowing as a writer, you want to be read. Yeah. So knowing no matter what, you would be in close conversation. It felt like to me the few times I did wade into Jezebel comment threads that there was an entire ideological spectrum within feminism 
of readers in there and that there were certain kinds of articles or certain kinds of opinions that were sure to anger some <laughs> part of that spectrum and sure to be cheerleaded of some. So it was almost like no matter what you covered, at least of the things that were important, there was going to be people just like Twitter today. There's going to be people who are very angry about it. And if you didn't cover it, there would be a different portion of people who are very angry about it not being covered or not being talked about. Um, does that cause you to grow a thicker skin? <laughs> I think it definitely gave me a thick skin. Working in TV gave me a thick skin. To be honest, having people pay attention to what you write is a huge honor. Hmm. Short of criminal trolling or abuse, which certainly existed, and I think I got pretty lucky to not get the worst of it, it is an honor to have somebody pay attention to what you're doing, even if they strongly disagree, as long as they do so in a way that is constructive. It wasn't always constructive, but I think it's also okay for conversations about really important things like gender, politics, sexuality, um, divisions on how people see the world. It's okay for those conversations to be lively. And I think there was a notion that there was groupthink yeah. in the Jezebel comments. To me, I felt like it was a raucous conversation. But I also was only there for two years. And it might have been a very particular moment in time. It might have calcified after that. When did you When did you start going on TV? It was when I was at Jezebel. Oh, okay. So, um, well, that's actually interesting to talk about it in its own right. I was going to ask you about, like, what your Chiron says on TV and that how that like changes like how people view you. So you've been on TV as a Jezebel reporter. You've been on TV as the author of uh, Notorious RBG. Pick it up, everyone. Uh, and you've been as a Washington Post reporter reporting on Charlie. These are very different Chirons. Yeah. If I just give the exact same information and I swap the Chirons around, mm -hmm. Totally different perception. So when you started going on TV as a Jezebel reporter, mm -hmm. like what kind of a, what kind of a chair is that? Well, bear in mind, I am now a CNN contributor. That CNN. is now my Chiron. That's your Chiron. Um, well, I but, didn't want yeah. to bring your current Chiron no, no, into play. Okay. These, these are the Chirons. Um, you know, of past. it's so funny. The first time I went on TV as a Jezebel reporter it was to talk about the young woman at Duke who had made a PowerPoint presentation of her sexual partners, Ooh. and I had been the only person who interviewed her. Throwback news story. I know. That had, yeah. that my brain has not accessed that part of its hard drive for many it, years. It was really an innocent time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she, yeah, so she had made a PowerPoint presentation evaluating all of the Duke lacrosse players that she had had sexual relations with, and I had talked to her shortly before she went dark, and so I went on TV to talk about that, and I saw it as my sacred mission to not have this woman be slut shamed in the public square. And so I had this really serious face and I was like, we do not believe that women should be shamed for having sexual partners. And I was like, and I did not understand, for example, you should smile when you're on television. Otherwise, yeah. at you least You came for in me, with the like manifesto, like kidnapping exactly. ransom note tone. Like I'm gonna punch you in the face if you yeah. slut shame. Um, you know, to be honest, and I love the setup of this question, but I have to be totally honest, only journalists read bylines and chirons. <laughs> I, was say, I don't. Most people are actually just watching this on mute in an airport. It's yeah, the totally. Of it. I mean, you know, actually, I will say this: some people listen very closely, and it depends on the show. For example, when I worked at MSNBC, and when I used to go on there as a freelancer, not that long ago, I went on the air on Chris Hayes' show, and I mentioned an essay that had been written by the feminist scholar Reva Siegel, who's a professor at Yale Law School, because she had this term "preservation through transformation" that I thought really exemplified what we were talking about and multiple people emailed me and tweeted me and were like can you give me the citation for that so 
you know, I know people stereotype cable news and sometimes it really deserves that stereotyping. But there are people who are genuinely just trying to like process everything that's happening in the world. And I don't think that had anything to do with how I was identified. It had to do with what I said. Yeah. And I've been really lucky that I have had a, a very varied career. But I, I just try to be the same person all the time. Like I try to be really scrupulous. I am very passionate about certain things, but I want to be fair. And I think that's ultimately what people respond to. And or they will email you about your hair. Like they'll definitely be like, stop touching your hair or stop saying, you know, or, um, you know, they'll, they'll have opinions about your bangs. When you're talking about something like the Charlie Rose story on yeah. air, I agree with you that people watch cable news. Like probably more people have heard about your Charlie Rose reporting via some cable news people talking about it, talking heads, you talking about it, that have actually sat down and read not only the entire article, but the entire follow-up article and really taking in all the information. So, like, how do you think about it when you're condensing seven years of reporting <laughs> down and they're like, so, what? Like, what's up with Charlie Rose? And this thing that is really pretty nuanced and the details are pretty important, too. Um, you've got two, three minutes of airtime to get into it? <laughs> you know, I, I this is such a great question because it really it made me feel guilty about the times that I had been on the churn side of it, you know, because I had poured and Amy had poured like everything we had into this story and we had spent so many hours in the editing and we chose every word so carefully for both legal and journalistic reasons. And then all of a sudden, it's going through the churn of aggregation and hot takes and tweets. And you're excited that people are finally know the secret thing that you've been reporting on. But then you're also seeing it, you know, misconstrued or twisted or kind of turned into like topic du jour when you know. And I there was one situation that week. It was a very crazy week after the piece came out to promote it in all different kinds of formats where I was sort of accidentally part of a panel that included Howard Dean and other people talking about my story. And they were like, well, I think that this story is about this. I'm like, hold on, guys. Wait, just like it just showed up in your calendar and you showed up. You're like, oh, what's Howard Dean doing here? Like, how do you accidentally <laughs> you know, get on a panel? It, it should have been an interview. It, and instead uh, there were panelists mm, there where they were discussing it and I was trapped. I've been, I've been bait and switched there yeah, before. I mean, I've I become the leader of the panel. That's my role. I don't know if that makes me want to be on a panel with you or not. Uh, um, it, it means if you lead the panel, you don't have to answer any of the questions. That's a good point. I always like asking the questions, too. But it, there was one particular, I mean, this is really off on a tangent, but to your point about like whether it's your job to immediately turn something into commentary, which I actually was so sick of, and I was so happy to be doing the primary sourcing on this, that a woman to my left was talking about how, well, this really shows, you know, your reporting really shows that we need to teach women to say no more clearly. We really need to raise young women to be more assertive. And I was, by the way, so you ask about how people react to me based on the hat that I'm wearing, but I also have different allowances based on the hats that I wear. So there with the Washington Post under my name, I have a responsibility to abide by the Washington Post's rules. And that is, I can't be like, fuck off, lady. Yeah. Can you, know? you be like, I think you've misinterpreted and or not read the article? Anything I'd say has to be based on, by the way, only reporting that was published. I can't even thank my sources. Like, I have to really be absolutely down the middle on it. So what I said was, well, when we spoke to these women, many of them had said no, and many of them were quite assertive. And in fact, I don't think that that is accurate to what we reported. So you have to be really, really careful. But I've had other jobs where I could be like, you are so off base. What, what advice would you give to 
someone dipping their toe into TV stuff about, uh, I mean, it's a live medium, or at least it's a, you can't go back and change what you said medium. Mm-hmm. Um, who's dealing with complex ideas? Because this Charlie Rose story is complex. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things at play from how institutions cover for their stars to how people become kind of like companies to themselves that are accountable to no one. Like, how do you bring complexity into an environment like TV news? Complexities maybe isn't the right word, but issues that Nuance. don't yeah, that don't fit into a two minute box naturally. I do think that with live television, you have to recognize that most people are coming to this from scratch. And it's not the fight you're having with your editor where you've been talking about it for months or with your colleague or your, you know, somebody, your interlocutor who you're really having like 10 hour conversations with. I used to think like, oh, I've already heard people all day say this and I'm going to say the next level thing. You might be informed by the next level thing, but actually what you have to do is distill everything which is a skill, yeah. right? I mean, it's you have to distill it without dumbing it down and you have to speak in short declarative sentences and you have to take control of what's happening. Yes, you might miss some of the complexity, but I think that there's a way to choose your words really carefully where you can try to accomplish something that hasn't been done before, but you're not talking at a level that you totally lose people. And I, I think that's actually a challenge that I enjoy. How is that... Um process of learning how to distill your message uh, for a drunk person at an airport. (laughs) Um, Does that feed back into your writing? Like, do you think, you know, that experience of like, well, what would I do if I had to do this in short declarative sentences in two minutes? Has that changed how you would approach a longer story? I think it's more like Twitter. I'm actually pretty careful with my Twitter. It's a little bit like newspaper writing. With the Charlie Rose story, We were edited by two newspaper guys who wanted us to whittle down everything to the bone. With the second story, I wrote a long narrative top, you know, about the executives who had known about Charlie and the scene at a party. And and they were like, that's nicer. And no, X number of people did this. Y number of people knew that, you know, we have spoken to Z people. So both the 140 or whatever it is now, 280 character limit and the newspaper print economy require you to do a lot in a really short period of time. And I think that they feed back into each other. You also write for New York Magazine now. You're a political correspondent I am by, a by title? senior correspondent senior and full-time at New York Magazine. Hey, and we haven't even talked about New York Magazine. <laughs> so you wrote, a, um, you wrote a story about Heidi Heitkamp. Uh, who was running in North Dakota mm-hmm. uh, for Senate. So this is like a classic format, like the campaign trail, like last few days before the election, down in the polls. When you're going in to do a story like that, what's your take on it? How? Do, how? Do, what's your angle in for a story like that? So I don't think anybody reads me because I'm like Nate Silver or yeah. because I'm the game change guys and I know all the ins and outs of what the campaign manager is doing. What I really wanted to do with the high camp story in New York Magazine was to try to figure out what it felt like on the ground to live some of these 
macro policy and life questions that had been debated maybe on cable news. And so the number one reason why I went down there is because Heidi Heitkamp had voted against Brett Kavanaugh. And there was this declaration that that was going to hurt her with voters. And then when she had described why she voted against Brett Kavanaugh, she'd invoked the Violence Against Women Act, and she'd invoked Native American women being included in that act. And that was a, a political battle that I'd covered. And simultaneously, in fact, Justice Ginsburg uh, had written a dissent in the Supreme Court upholding a voter ID law, a law that required street addresses in North Dakota that was probably going to prevent a lot of Native American people from voting. And so all these were like issues, right? They were just things that I am interested in that I'm covering as a policy question or a political question. And here's this one person who her campaign allows us to talk about like, oh, what is happening with voter disenfranchisement on Native American reservations. That was why I went there, not because I love being on the campaign trail, because often it can be really hard to know if you're even reporting on the right thing when you're there. But also, like, when this story, this story was sort of conceptual, I wasn't really sure, like, okay, so how do you take it from the conceptual to people? Because otherwise, why am I going there? And it's not just so I could have the dateline that says North Dakota, even though I was excited to add that to my list of states. And I, w- I felt like, I'm sure this has happened to you before. Like sometimes you're like, oh God, like I could come home and I'd spend all this money and I didn't get it. <laughs> like I couldn't find it. But then sometimes you're talking to someone and you're like, yes, this is real. This thing I suspected, this person, this moment. And for me with that story, it was when I was at the hike camp event on, on one of the reservations inside a casino. And I met this couple and the woman had a like a service dog. So I just went over to talk to them. And I I had heard that like they gave Heidi Heitkamp some sage. And it turned out that um, the male half of the couple was a Native American elder who had been so inspired by Heidi Heitkamp voting against Brett Kavanaugh that he compared her to one of the dog soldiers who sacrificed themselves. Of course, this actually proved to be prophetic. She did sacrifice herself. I don't know if it's the only reason she lost, but she lost. But this man was so moved that he showed up at this political rally and was moved on a level that she was like a white person that he would compare to these extremely important sacred soldiers. And there there was sage that they had been growing on the reservation since forever. And he brought her some of the sage to thank her. And she cried. You know, you can't plan for those moments. You could try to kind of lay the groundwork for there to be something and hope that something works out. I want to... um come back to something you said earlier about you know your early career and what you can and can't do, whether you can go to the march or not go to the mm-hmm. march. And I think most of the going to the march now happens on Twitter. <laughs> the good and the bad of going to the march now happens on Twitter um, and is therefore time-stamped um, into infinity. Um, for you, this is an era that... Um, I think journalists are coming under renewed criticism for political bias, for jokes, all sorts of things. There's all sorts of ways you can get in trouble. I wonder if your views have changed on it at all. And also just as your platform gets bigger and bigger and you become more recognizable, you know, you're now the person who wrote the Charlie Rose story. Um, how you manage yourself as a person and a worker. You're still on Twitter, to the best of my knowledge. I, I am still on worth. Twitter. Um, 
I'm choosing my words carefully the way people should choose their words carefully when they tweet. Um, I don't think that there's a single narrative of how I've assembled my career. I've just tried to do things that are interesting to me, but it has involved wearing a lot of different hats and speaking out in public in your own platform it can be really difficult to reconcile all those different roles, right? So you mentioned the Charlie Rose story. I also wrote a book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I know, we haven't even talked know? about that. And I, I, I am a feminist and I go on TV and and I sometimes want conservatives to talk to me. Sometimes. And so, and I've covered media, but I've also covered politics. And so I think one of the reasons to be really judicious with what you say on social media is that you don't want to foreclose on the options for yourself for someone to like, think that you're fair, right? And I think that I'm much more conservative about that than I used to. But part of that is, I think, because I have more to lose now. And I also understand why people come out swinging on Twitter, because it also helps establish you. Yeah. I mean, we're in a whole uncharted territory where you know people are recruiting newer voices because they come to like that person's voice on the internet. So I don't think being a robot where you only tweet links is a good career decision for someone who's just starting out. But I also think you don't want to give yourself fewer options. Well, it's interesting. When we were talking about Jezebel, you described Jezebel comments as proto-Twitter. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the people writing for Jezebel, that you can say more when you have less to lose kind of applies to the Jezebel staff. I mean, it's a lot of was a lot of people. It applied and, to me then, too, by yeah, the way. People in their I was establishing 20s. myself. as I mean, I was getting in fights all the time. Yeah. And <laughs> it's a connection I've never drawn that... Um, that it's hard to have voice when you have a lot to lose. It's the easiest to develop a voice when you're not like protecting something. Yeah, and I don't mean that necessarily like, oh, I'm afraid that I'm gonna get fired or disgraced, although that is part of it. But I'm actually talking more about the fact that I'm gonna call someone and be like, hey, talk to me, I'm gonna be fair. And they're gonna go back and look at my tweets and be like, you snarked on this person. Like, why should I talk to you? Yeah, it's real. And. But I'm not talking about, at least in my particular case, because I work at a magazine and they don't care if I support Planned Parenthood because I'm like, hey, I support Planned Parenthood. And by the way, here's the complexities of what they're dealing with right now or whatever given topic. As you know, magazines have always been a place where you can both have voice and reporting. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted to work at one, because at The Washington Post, I really respected the reporting that was happening there. But, you know, it was almost clinical in its precision to avoid trying to like have any kind of value judgment about anything. And there's a spectrum of that, right? Like, I don't think that we should all be like upholding the Daily Caller standards of voicey, political, opinionated reporting. But I, I, I would like to be able to tell my readers like, OK, but this is actually bullshit. What's next for you? What, what do you want to do at New York Magazine this year? So I think, again, as somebody who's worked in both commentary and reporting, the thing I'm most excited about now that I'm getting settled in at New York Magazine, I just started like a week before Brett Kavanaugh's hearings kicked off. And right, then we went right into the flames. <laughs> exactly. And then we went immediately into the midterms. So I just feel like I'm getting started now. But what I would like to do is to continue to do investigative reporting. And then if I need to call bullshit on something, I have the freedom to do that, too. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. Thanks to Janelle Pfeiffer for editing this episode. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thank you to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Uh, thanks to Irene Carmone for coming in. 
Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. You can always get in touch, podcast at longform.org. We'll see you next week. Thanks again to Scoggin. I'm admiring their smartwatch, which is uh, very in keeping with their less is more Danish minimalist uh, outlook, which focuses on what's meaningful in life, being part of community, making time for relationships, and living in the moment. You can visit Scoggin.com and get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Also uh, supporting the show this week, it was TBD with Tina Brown. You know Tina Brown from Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. Check out her new podcast. She's interviewing all kinds of people, including in the first episode, Jill Soloway from Transparent. Subscribe to TBD with Tina Brown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this show. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.